and I get the feeling you've been cheated. The magic might have been inside of us all along. Are you serious? Yeah. I told you, Michelle, I love you. Welcome to the Social Yet Distance Podcast. My name is Jack Barnell. I'd like to welcome you. Thank you for coming by. I've got a couple of uh, special people with me tonight. Paul Corman Roberts is going to join us. We're going to talk about his new release, Bone Moon Palace. And Dr. Fran Locke, who is my compadre, uh, partner in crime on the other side of the world, is here as well. And uh, we'll talk about poetry and such. But let me give you an introduction into Paul. Paul Corman Roberts' second full-length collection of Bone Moon Palace will be released by Nomadic Press on July 3rd, 2021. Previous collections include the Abominuts, tell me if I'm wrong, Paul, are coming to Piss on Your Lawn by Howling Dog Press in 2006, Neocom, Muter, Tainted Coffee Press, 2009, 19th Street Station, Full of Crow Chat Series, Full of Crow, that was the one, 2011, and we shoot typewriters from Nomadic Press in 2015. The short story, Deathbed Confessions of Christopher Walken, shortlisted for a Subterrain Magazine's 2010 Fiction Contest, a three-time Pushcart and Best of the Web nominee. He, has, he currently teaches workshops for the Older Writers Lab in conjunction with the San Francisco Public Library, as well as the San Francisco Creative Writing Institute. He sometimes fills in as drummer for the United States Ghostal Service. And I've got all kind of blurbs and quotes that I'll include a little bit later on in the final edits. Um, but let's chat, guys. Welcome. Thank you for having me, Jack. Thank you for having me, Fran. It's, uh, You're very welcome. It's my pleasure. Um, I'm not going to dance around too much, Paul. I want to know why is it when I go to do research on a podcast so that I'm somewhat informed, I have a hard time finding a lot of your work out there other than your accomplishments. Um, I, <laughs> I mean, I didn't, I didn't find a lot of poetry, which is just, I've, I was struck by that because everybody that I know basically, and I never really recognized it with you as long as I've known you, Everybody else just has this volume of, of work out there that may or may not be applicable to any projects that they're involved with. But I didn't like I even cruised your Facebook timeline and there just really wasn't much there. And I wonder why that is, actually. Um, I think it's because I've changed over the years. I think if you if we had been doing this 10 years ago, it might have been very different. Um, you might have found a lot more of my stuff. That's, it's funny though. It's, it's, I mean, I don't know. I, you know, I go through, if, if I do that, I mean, I know my stuff is still out there, but a lot of it is from a long time ago. And so it's faded underneath current algorithms. It's like you do, you have to sort of dig and, you know, it's like you have to sometimes find these things and, and not everything I have out there is, um, not everything, not everything I have out there is poetry. I mean, some of it's, some of it's fiction or some of it's essays, some of it's reviews that I used to write for Cherry Bleeds and for The Rumpus and places mm -hmm. like that. Um, but I think, but I, I'm going to guess, I'm going to suspect that the main reason is that over the, over the intervening years, really from 2012, 2013 on, um, I've almost been known more as an organizer than a writer uh, right. because I, not only did I have my own, 
not only did I have a couple of my own series going at one point, but I was doing a whole festival too. Right. And I was that 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 festival ran for six straight years, and now I'm in the process of trying to rekindle that same festival. Beast um, crawl, which is, the beast crawl, which is which is um, which is a monster. Literal. I mean, it's it, I, I say we say beast. We're not kidding. It, it's to to organize something on a grassroots level is incredibly difficult and time consuming and labor intensive. Um, and the, at the same time, you have to try to be as transparent uh, and inclusive as possible when you're doing that. Um, and it's, I mean, over the years, I've gotten better at it. I've gotten better at it. I've, it's, it's, and it's taught me a lot about, you know, what the makeup of the community uh, and the kind of writers that we have out here and the kind of writers that are seeking a place in a larger community. Obviously, a lot of writers don't care about community. They, they go it alone. They are, they are an island uh, because they feel that that is the way to be. And, you know, and that's, and thank goodness for freedom of expression because that's they have the freedom to do that. But um, beyond that, but once you once you've done the whole solitary, I am a rock, I am an island trip, uh, you kind of have to sort of admit that you start needing other people for things to reach out beyond yourself. Um, I definitely, I, I definitely understand that, Paul, because I find myself recycling my own work just because. You know, not to diminish my, the quality of my work because it has gotten better over the years, but my desire to show it is minimized. I just don't, I'm not invested in, I'm much more concerned that somebody's gonna skip through this world and not realize that poetry's out there or that there's something yeah. out there that you can read that will actually shape your world if you'll give it a shot, you know? So, um, I, I mean, I understand that. And I, and I realized at the time in asking the question, it wasn't some like copyright issue. You're worried somebody's going to steal your stuff. You know, you remember the days when Facebook was going to do the poetry books, they were going to steal all your stuff and you didn't want to post. Oh yeah. In my space too. And I remember, and I had the beat guys, you know, Neely Tchaikovsky, like he was just, his voice hammered into me going like, you can't do that. They'll steal your stuff. And, you know, realizing as and as I got deeper deeper into this, I realized this is really this is really the dinosaur model of publishing that we're talking where this comes to the fear that comes from the old dinosaur publishing model that is that is less and less relevant with each day. I mean, the internet right. has made uh, you know self publishing is not a joke anymore. No. And 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 working with presses and when a press has a team of marketers contact me to say, hey, we wanted to get all this information, you know, kind. Of, Kind of like some of these podcasts. Just kidding. I'm kidding. I tease. I tease. Uh, you, but you're right. Um, oh, you're but, absolutely right. But it's like it's like if I'm gonna do all this work, why not go one step further and just put it out myself? You know, and it's and well, how are you gonna distribute? Well, you know, Jeff Bezos makes it really easy for the writer to right. do that now. And 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 yes, I say, I know I, I know the greater evil that Jeff Bezos represents on one on the one hand. Uh, and on, and then the other, it's all like, but who's got a better deal for the creatives? Who's who? Nobody, nobody has a better deal for the creatives. You you get fifty percent. No third party publisher can offer you fifty percent. Well, and I have to ask myself, so, why do I do this? Do I do it because I want to sell books, or do I do it because I want to spread art? Also, an important question to ask. You know, Fran, what do you think about all this? Because I know with the body of work that you have, you know. It wouldn't be hard to find you if I was looking for your work. Um, yeah. Just give me your thoughts on all this. 
that, that's just because I'm I'm fucking inconsonant and you know like I can't I can't think anything I don't say that's the only reason for that that it so so I just and and so I have to send it out and it goes to places I'm not really fussed about where it goes as long as it goes somewhere but that's more a sort of you know a psychological condition that it has to do with the ethics of publishing what I think I'm in a place now and I think you guys are probably in a similar place where I have realized that what I love is bringing poetry to other humans and I also realized that that poetry need not necessarily be mine. And that's a moment like of maturity where you realize yeah. actually it's not about you motherfucker. And I, it's, it's taken me 38 <laughs> years to get there. <laughs> I finally got to that point where I'm like, oh, actually it doesn't need to be my poetry. I can, and I've had some, I mean, I bitch about teaching a lot, but I've had some amazing moments sharing, sharing Roddy's work with people and, and just, watching people connect to that or finding the poem that unlocks poetry for someone and I'm much more interested in doing that now with my own writing and, and being published I'll put it out as long as anyone wants it but it's it, it's also it's receded in importance for me well you, you know, know Fran I mean Fran you and I have been on this journey for a long time as well and in, in a little bit a little bit closer capacity obviously than than Paul and I but you know, what I see from the outside in at this stage with you is there's a comfort level with your work. And, and I mean, I just remember like the ringing of hands and slamming your head into the wall and gnashing of teeth and, you know, how hard it was just to be in the light of poetry for you. And, yeah. and, and I haven't seen that look on you in a long, long time. And that makes me very, very, very happy. And I think that that's part of that awareness that, that you're talking about, that, that realization that it ain't about me at all. Yeah, you know? I think that's it. It's just, you realize that not everybody is obsessively looking at you and they're not, you know, it's, it's basically fine. You are one voice amongst a hundred and tomorrow. Wait, you're obsessively forgotten. looking at me. Who, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> they're looking. When people are looking at me, they're looking through me and at the dog mostly. I've realized, as I was saying to my friend Pat this morning, I'm not going to do poems anymore. I'm just going to communicate in memes about my dog now. That's that's my next book. It's just Manny memes, Manny in various hats. Yeah, um, I decided that I'm so lonely. Yeah, I need the the number of followers and influencers that follow you will just grow exponentially from that. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Well, I figured out that I'm so lonely, I really need a dog in my life, but it's not because of the dog, it's because maybe it'll attract a hot woman at the dog park, you know? <laughs> no, see, these are the women, this is the woman that dogs attract. You don't exactly. want that. You don't want that. <laughs> so, so let's talk about Beast Crawl, man, because I, um, mm. I saw the thing, um, the post about it recently, and I'm pretty jazzed about that because I missed it the first time, you know. Talk to us about where that came first from and, and like what the plans are. Well, it's like any, it's like any great, uh, like any great event. It's not original. It's completely stolen. Uh, and Absolutely. And we, and we didn't, and we, we didn't look very far to steal it either. We looked right across the bay at San Francisco and stole it from them. <laughs> um, and it was, uh, but there was, but there, you know, there, it did, it did start with a little bit of, Hey, can you include us? And somewhere in all of that, there was a no, and, you know, like, well, then I guess we'll just do it ourselves then. Um, 
you know, the, 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 the beast crawl is the East Bay. If, if, if you guys might not, Jack might be a little bit more familiar with the, the politics of the San Francisco Bay area than perhaps you are, friend. I doubt it's, it. Uh, there is, I mean, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's rival, it's rival, it's rivalry and kinship at the same time, you know, almost that, that, that sense of, that sense of family that is still family, but also other kind of sense, um, you know, and, uh, so East I mean, Coast versus first lit crawl Coast was done. <laughs> right. It was it was the it was the Litquake Festival in San Francisco that originated the crawl. They get the credit for really inventing the model, not the crawl itself. Crawls have been we've had crawls as long as we've had alcohol establishments in public 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 house has always been, you know, has always called for the touring model, so to speak. Um, but to but to combine it with literary readings, you know, with people reading really emotionally raw fiction. Or emotionally raw memoir, or emotionally raw poems, uh, with uh, combining that with the scavenger hunt is like one of the most brilliant ideas ever. And the Litquake organizers deserve all the credit for coming up with that and developing that, because the crawl comes with a map. That's the whole thing: is that the map shows you who and what is reading where at what time, and if it's really done right, if it's really done right, you have these events in very close proximity to each other, like literally walking across the street from one to another so that you don't even have to go to an entire, be at a reading in its entirety. You can be at a reading, see a couple of people go and then leave that and go quickly over across the street, maybe pick up a drink, a beverage or a snack along the way and then drop into the other reading to catch the back end of that. And then we have a break and you know, all the readings run for about an hour. They run, they run more, you know, it's, we try to cut them at 60 minutes. And of course, some, you know how readings go. Sometimes they go over a little bit, but everybody's on their best behavior. Everybody, you know, is, is, is trying to share nice. So after we do this in three rounds. So after the first round, there's about a half hour break. So people really can get a beverage and maybe a, more of a bite to eat. Uh, and then back to, uh, and then back to the readings in, in, in phases. And of course it's, um, yes, and it's a huge party. There's no lie. It's 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 absolutely a huge party, and that is so much of the joy of it is that it is that type of a party. But also, what we have found is it's a little bit like taking a large amount of really hot burning particles and cramming them into a space really really close to each other into this sort of compressed space. And just like in physics, just like in quantum mechanics, when you do that, new things appear, new structures form. So the first time we ever did the beast crawl in the East Bay, we got 27. I mean, at that, at that, the, the lit crawl in San Francisco at that time was right around 50 or 60 events in a single night. You know, on our first night, we had 27 events in a single night, but all in really close proximity to each other over an entire Saturday night. And coming out of that, there were so many new readings, <laughs> a couple of new magazines were started and several relationships actually began. And one of the, and, and one of the relationships that began and it is still going strong to this day. And for me, that is the litmus test, right? Like if that relationship is still together, then, then everything about this festival was worth it. If, if, if that created a, a happy family. As well, far let as me I'm ask concerned. this though, but, you know, but, but uh, do you think that, that, the fact that you guys have used a guillotine to be rid of the people who don't progress to the next round drew in more than what it would have usually? Hey, there's nothing like, there's, there's nothing like shortening the enemies list, right? That's, that's what I hear. <laughs> I don't know. No, no guillotine. No, it, I'm, thankful, thankfully, it's not a playoff. Thankfully, it's not a sudden death playoff. Oh, thank God. 
Poetry is a war, my friend. You know that. <laughs> no, there was no, there, there was an event though. You know, maybe you've heard of it. There was an event called Literary Death Match, which was exactly that. I do remember it that. Was, it was, you know, it was. Oh, I really, yeah, Literary Death Match, and these people would come in, and there would be judges who would give, and you, a winner would advance to the next round. And uh, at this, this is the, these are the kind of rounds where everybody wins. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> The Social Yet Distanced is sponsored by The Emotional Orphan in the form of production support. We hope that you'll continue to help us grow the show through the purchase of merchandise at Redbubble or some books or broadsides at Gum Road. You can find links on our Anchor page and on all our social media. Thanks. (laughs) All right, Fran, you're up. Talk about school. Do I have to talk about Talk school? about teaching, please. <laughs> I, here's I the thing. I, I, I mean, I'd like to hear you guys talk about it simply because I suspect that what you both do on a daily basis is rather different, actually. And that's kind of what I'm looking for out of this deal. So you guys figure it out. <laughs> yeah, so I suppose, you know, my, my question I always ask any writer who who also teaches is just how (laughs) how are you balancing the time between doing the work that you need to do and being a writer who teaches or do you feel yourself being sucked into becoming a teacher who writes which is something I said I would never do but I've started at the moment I think I'm at a place where the two things are feeling more kind of symbiotic but there are, there are times, and, and at the moment it's marking time, so it's, I'm, I'm also kind of marking papers, and I can feel my life slowly ebbing away. So I, <laughs> I guess I would, you know, my, my kind of my first question is, is just how do you find that, that balance between those two kind of So yeah, I have, I have a version of, I have, I have a version of that. Um, where, and, and I know exactly what you're talking about because I did do the grad school thing back in the day and nearly every person I went to grad school with got, as you say, sucked into the teaching thing to where they are not writers. They really aren't writers anymore. All they, and they, and they had these teaching careers and I never did it for those reasons. Right. I was all like, well, wait a minute. Why did you, why, why not just take a credential program then? Why, why did, if this was going to be the career path, how did you get, how did you get shunted off of this romantic idealistic path Oh, right, because nobody can afford it. That's, oh, right, that's how you got shunted off of it. Okay. Um, but like one of those, one of the, I mean, one or two of those people are still writing to this day, but I, I, that's what I noticed about grad school is that those, the, the, the very quickly the, the career went by, the, the career as a creative went by the wayside in favor of working in the educational machine. Um, and I avoided it for so long. I avoided it for so, so long. And I, it's not for lack of trying. I tried to get into the educational machine a couple of times, tried to shortcut it and wasn't able to get in. And I simply said, you know, I am, I'm not going to be able to do it this way. Uh, but times got, you know, in 2016, I started teaching in 2016 because times started getting really hard. And this was the one thing I could rely upon. And I began to realize, holy shit, this writing that I've been doing that felt like nothing, that felt like me just talking shit to myself for years and years and years. And, and, maybe, and maybe getting the occasional platform to bellow it at converts at some point uh, actually was helpful because um, 
because then I was able to parlay it into uh, a teach. And, and, and the thing about teaching is I do it on so many levels. I, the hardest work I do, what is like grading papers for me is when I'm working with writing students and creative writing students, because I do offer a class, I offer this class called the art of the chapbook. And a lot of those folks, especially at beginning level have a lot of work that needs to be done. I, I, I essentially, not, I'm not just a teacher. I also become in the way for, for a very short window of time. I also become their editor. Yeah. to show them like, hi, there is a way that you can do this. There is a way that you can get your book to market uh, and, and get this out there. You have a place and it doesn't matter. And, and there are several options you can. And I, I don't I don't stigmatize the self-publishing thing at all. Mm -hmm. I tell them that that's a legitimate route for them to pursue if they want to pursue it. I can't do it for them. I can't visualize. I can't give them the ultimate vision. You know, you, nobody can do that in five or six weeks of knowing, but you can, but you can show somebody where they're grounded and where they're strong in their writing. And that's what, and to me, that's like the grading part of it. I also teach public school. I, I don't have a regular class. I work as a substitute teacher for the public school system. So I have, so I bounce around and I'm not at the same campus all the time. And in that way, I sort of get to participate in where really is some of the most important work with our people needs to be done. Uh, which is on that public school level because these aren't going to be these aren't all going to be creative people but they're go or they're going to be creative in different ways but creativity can still help them in their lives and you have to you know and you still you're trying to make them understand how much more they it's so frustrating with education because because the degree guarantees us nothing the, the degree might as well be uh, toilet paper we wipe our butts with at the end of the day, but just try getting a good job without one of those pieces of paper. See what that is, see, see how far you get without one of those pieces of paper. I mean, maybe you're good on the hustle, maybe you're good on the street hustle, but that's also proved to be highly unsustainable as well. So it's, you know, pick your poison. We all have to pick it, but listen, if you can get the education, if you can get that little piece of paper, your options open up considerably. You know, it's, I don't, uh, it's what the one thing that substitute teaching me has taught me that it's a waste of time to try to bullshit these kids. They're smarter. They're every bit as smart as we are. We've mm -hmm. taken their childhoods away from them by making the economy more difficult. Um, so it's a waste of time to bullshit them. Uh, yeah. Talk to them with respect. Talk to them as you would another adult. Um, and if they don't understand you, they'll, 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 they'll tell you, they'll tell you, I don't know what right. you mean. I don't know what that word means. I don't know what you mean when you say such and such. And then you take the time to explain it to them. You don't get frustrated. You don't sit there and say, well, you just don't have, well, duh, that's why you're in third school. That's, yeah, exactly. I get, frustrated. <laughs> I get frustrated with other teachers who think that they, these kids should just know everything already. And it's like, you're not here. You're not here because you actually care about people learning. You care because you just need a job. And I'm there because I need a job too. No lie. I'm not <clears throat> I'm kidding. But being, a sub, being at the substitute level is really helpful for me because I can leave the job at the door. The teachers with regular classes, they can't leave the job at the door. They're dealing with, they're gonna be dealing with those same kids every single day. And, and they become, and I, I get it. I get how they become emotionally invested in their kids and that boundary and that. And, and I've, I've noticed when I take an assignment that's maybe a couple of days with the class, I immediately have, I noticed almost immediately how it's the problem kids, the ones that are the most, the ones that I spend the most time policing, trying to trying to manage their behavior and doing things. When I walk away from those multi-day assignments, they're the ones who have stolen my heart. They're the ones who've got themselves like, man, that's somebody who just needs a little somebody there to help them get them on the way. And I can see it and I can mm -hmm. see it and I can see why. I, I then understood why so many of my fellow classmates got sucked in deeper and deeper into it because they got more emotionally invested in it. And, and I could see myself doing that 
<clears throat> but um, but also at the same time, um, I don't know, I've got this thing that allows me to make this expression and I've had to work at it to make myself have the time to do it. I have found myself trying to write a fucking novel in all my life. I have always wanted to write several novels and I've never written one. And I, uh, and at the start of this year, <laughs> even as I said, as I said, I was going to do it last year when the pandemic started. And, and of course, nothing came of that, but going into the, I decided I'm going to do a real new year's resolution in 2021. And I am going to write 250 words a day, not even every day, just Monday through Friday. Mm. 1,250 words a week and I have been able to stick to that quota through six months of this year so I've got half a novel written so um, it's not easy it's not easy to make that time because I don't feel like it I, I want to check it out it's, it's it's easy to push it off to the next day but then if you push it off to the next day you have to make up the quota the next day but um, it's amazing how for me I, I don't really truly experience writer's block. I've got so much bullshit flying around inside my head all the time because I'm a fucking neurotic mess that if I just put the paper to the pen and just start moving it, something is gonna start to come out. I've learned, I've had to learn to have faith in that process. Just like, you don't know what's gonna come out, but just start moving the pen or start moving the words on, or start laying the words down on the monitor, whatever it is, just start doing it it'll get, and the next thing you know, 25, 30 minutes have gone by and you're like, holy crap, that just, that, you know, it, come, <laughs> it comes out of you like taking a shit, basically. It yeah, does. It, it, the thing about it is too, is like you, 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 people throw around this term writer's block and it means a lot of different things. You know, you, you use it in your context. And to me, it's like the block isn't between my brain and my fingertips. The block is between you know, my head and the emotion that I'm trying to actually let escape through the fingers. The block happens here. It doesn't happen out here with my fingertips, you know? And so right. that's where that action, I think, makes a difference, at least in my, in my case, is just to do it. It kind of stimulates that, mm -hmm. that muscle memory that says, okay, I, I, this is what's going on here. <laughs> The, the other piece of that, you brought up, you brought up the exact word I was thinking was muscle memory. Mu you know, the muscle memory becomes like right. a starter fluid. It's the kickstart that gets it going. Well, and the other thing too, that you said that's most important is, you know, I always resisted the further education thing simply because I'll give you the reason why I went to a school called the music business Institute. Okay. And it was a parole move to keep from going back to jail, okay? So I had to get myself in school, right? So I go to this place and I'm looking around, I'm realizing these are all retired cokehead music execs who have nothing <laughs> else to do. So they started a school and they're telling all their war stories about back in the day when they used to be, you know, uh, working at RCA in Nashville, you know? And, and, and doing mm -hmm. the boards for Sonny, whoever, you know? <laughs> and, and so at that point, I kind of formed this opinion that to have uh, a perceived uh, expert who's just gonna impart some stories really wasn't the ticket. So an MFA program later on was way out of the question because I just figured it's like the whole, the whole if, if you're a teacher, that means you're not doing it. You know, if you're a doer, you're a doer. If not, you teach, you know? 
And so that's kind of where that whole thing was. Yeah, that was that's that's a, that's a stigma. That was a stigma I needed right. to get over in my own head too. <laughs> you know, but I realized, but 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 all the people I saw not teaching weren't making any money either. And that but, was a real, but that piece and, of paper uh, and that know. dedication to getting it is what gives you your payoff with those kids who are the troublemakers or who steal your heart mm -hmm. or who end up writing a book one day because yeah. you inspired them. You know, and that's why I believe I couldn't. Right freaking poetry online now is because you're out there doing good shit <laughs> i got busy i got busy with some other things but i mean but we see them right we see we see the poets who just post work on on their social media pages just pell-mell whatever they'll they'll post it on their page then they'll copy and paste it and then put it on all these other group messages as well and i mean i don't have an issue with that that's necessarily but for me that's like giving up too much of myself right. i you know if uh, i I'll, I'll maybe write. I'll maybe write a piece once every two or three years, and I think, you know what? I'm going to go ahead. I'm just going to go spill this out in public, and just and just give it up and 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 let it be. And some pieces I can I can you know, feel comfortable doing that. But I don't like I said. I only get that feeling maybe once every two or three years. Most of the time, it feels like a, giving away a lot of emotional work um, for free. And it's like I don't I I, I don't know. It's it's I, I don't Man. mind getting naked in front of an audience, but but let me have an audience first, you know. <laughs> Exactly. Well, Fran, I mean, the amount of stuff that you post, I mean, and I know of more of it than most people even actually see. Mm. So, I mean, what are your thoughts about throwing so much stuff out there? Because I know how related you are to those words. Yeah, I mean, I've, I, I have the opposite thing um, where Paul is talking about it feels like giving away the emotional work and, and it does. But for me, that's the point. I don't want it. I don't want it in my life. I don't want it in my head. It's somebody else can take possession of it once it's out there. You know, even, even if people are just, I don't think they're even reading all of it. I wrote this huge thing recently based off of Dante's Inferno. And I know maybe two or three people have actually looked, got past the first like paragraph of that because it was weird, even by my standards. But I don't care if it's out there and it has the illusion of somebody else looking at it. It's like me saying, this is not my responsibility anymore. It's like, please deal with this. I don't, I don't mm. fucking want it. And it's just to get it away. And I could go to therapy. Oh yeah, no, that's a really... Isn't that really just like permission <laughs> to be intrigued by the words or not though? I mean, I know what you're talking about with the Dante's Inferno thing. And it's like the story about Dante's Inferno and the, the, the discussion about that is what's important to me. I've never read Dante's Inferno and have no freaking desire just because of the misery everybody equates to it when they talk about it, you know? So, I mean, and I, so I come completely uninformed, you know? So, <laughs> but coming completely uninformed is sometimes the best best way to come to a text. But, come but to I get halfway through it and I don't feel intrigued by it, so I don't read it, you know? Yeah. I mean, and that's not a slight on the poet or the poem or the writing. It's just, it's not for me, you know? Hmm. move on that doesn't mean that that person not, write the best thing there's shit i read of yours friend that ain't that great you know for me because yeah. i know what you're able to do you know so oh, there's definitely stuff i've written that isn't like 90 percent i wholeheartedly disagree with that but i understand your judgment on it too though so it is it is it is a little bit like you know we're we're icebergs right we're only we're only showing 10 to 15% of what our, our true size 
uh, you know, peeking out of the surface of the water. That's that's if, if if the internet is just this sort of this sort of morass of an ocean. You know, that's there's only that ten to fifteen percent of ourselves that we're showing to the rest of the to the rest of the iceberg community, so to speak. Um, and and there's what's underneath is so much more substantial and so much more defining what we're showing. Um, you know, off the off the top of the surface, I guess. How's how's that? How's that for a Wednesday metaphor? Um, it's perfect, actually. I, you know, I, I just I, I just uh, let me ask you, Fran. How long have you been teaching for? So I guess my kind of my current with like my professional qualification for just over a year, but just doing mm -hmm. workshops and shit. I guess I've been doing it for like the last seven, six, seven years now. Okay. Okay, so yeah, that's so so that's a little bit that's a little bit longer than I have, and 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 being a pro at it as it were, yeah, I've only been almost coming up on three years, right? Um, yeah. But it's been, but what what I found what is I found the different levels of teaching, whether it be in school or doing the private workshop type deal, um, is that they do have a way of informing each other, and that the best thing I can do is the best thing I can do, no matter what, whether it's a fucking writing class or it's a special ed kindergarten class, no matter what. The best thing I can do is basically go up there and sell myself and sell myself as somebody who is who is going to be kind of a sounding board, who's going to listen, but who's also going to address the issues of everybody in in, in the shop. And you have to now the way you do that with each of those groups is completely different, of course. But you know, you you learn you learn that it still starts sort of inside here with your creativity. And that's and that's what I realized like the best classes I've ever taken in my life, the classes that I got the most knowledge out of. The most uh, the things that stuck with me the most in every single one of those, the uh, the teacher was a entertaining performer of some sort or another, who had a way of making the knowledge accessible and interesting and fun, and and if you can and if you just keep pushing things in that direction, good things are going to happen. That's <laughs> that's 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 what I sense the big takeaway is from all that. Fran has a special relationship with her special kind of. Uh student <laughs> <laughs> yeah with the university students we, we we're not it's it's a little adversarial i think right at times yeah jack's laughing because i moan about them a lot they know i do they, they listen to the podcast they know i bitch about them it's fine it's a thing we have <laughs> i like to believe that they find it enchanting and amusing but they probably actually don't because and, they're all and, terribly middle class and well, i, I and, find that difficult. You know, the point of view from the united states is that we certainly hope we will have them question their classist mentality yeah <laughs> <laughs> just because daddy can afford school doesn't mean you're smart Right. <laughs> and it's very difficult. I mean, I find sort of coming into a group of people who are like 17, you know, like 18, 19, 20 years old, and, and the life experiences they've had are just so incredibly different to my own. And, and in a way that, you know, they have things that were unimaginable for me growing up. And they talk about the life experiences they've had and the stuff they've got on the holidays they've been on their fucking kitchen islands and their gym memberships, all of this shit. Like it's normal. And I'm like, there is a whole world out there that doesn't have, you know, one tenth of what you've got. And it's finding a way of just, I, you know, I want them to acknowledge the immense privilege that they have, that we all have and being in that room and just, yeah. And, I, and I've struggled with that sometimes. And I sort of like, you know, I, I, you can see I'm struggling with it now. It physically causes me pain. <laughs> they haven't experienced any life, and it physically. <laughs> yeah, 
Get back to me when you when you've squatted in a London flat in the middle of a punk height in the height of yeah the exactly you know yeah <laughs> right after you've after you've toured with the Levelers or something right <laughs> <laughs> you like that to impress you that I know who the Levelers are yeah <laughs> the Levelers and Blythe Blythe Power Blythe Power and you model that's is otherwise a Blythe Power yeah uh, yeah here it's here it's it's not the grateful it's not the Grateful Dead anymore in the United States now it's yeah, uh, now it's they are it's, dead and we're grateful finally. I'm actually I'm too old to actually qualify to say that. <laughs> yeah, me too. Me too. Me too. But it's but there is it's it's the whole it's the whole idea of running away and joining the circus, right? It's <laughs> yeah, it's like you can't yeah, it's I mean that that became I mean previously well this here in the united states i mean it's a huge different cultural difference in the united states we don't have the separation between secondary school and college there right. you know are you, you graduate you're immediately in college and that, that's been the process i mean some conscious parents have said no no it's i'm going to have you do something after high school you're going to have to have a job or you're going to have to do some kind of service or something but other countries have that built in you know you can't you can't join, you can't go to college right after you graduate high school in Israel, for example. You have to join the military or you have to do so, or you have to, or you have to find some way to provide service or do, like you said, get that life experience. And for a long time, that whole life on the road thing, whether it's traveling around with the Grateful Dead or just going on that, or just hitchhiking across the country, which was considered a lot safer in the 50s and 60s, mm -hmm. of course, and uh, which, but some people are still willing to give it the old go. I, I know they're out there. I see them out there, as yeah. a matter of fact. But it's um, <clears throat> but a hard road to go. That is, but it's but you know that that that, that that's that's romance that belongs to another generation, really. Um, and I wish that other generation would figure that out. But uh, we, oh we, yeah, we I mean, with what, what happened to those people who took that break between high school and college and took a year off to decide what they were going to do and go hitchhike around right. Europe and go from hostel to hostel. Right. 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 Gap year, fucking gap year. They have that over here between, like between college and, and uni. So you, you finish your, you do your A-levels and then you go before you go to university. And they go and they dig wells in Africa and then they think they know about yeah. the, the, the right. plight of the third world, which, which pisses me off also. <laughs> or they go to a fucking right. kibbutz or something. But it's like, I mean, life is everywhere. You don't have to go on the road. You don't have right. to, you know, sell your teeth and move into a squat in order to live life. You just have to attend to the community you're in and be aware of people around you. And, and I find that, you know, privilege has a way of insulating you from having to deal with that. And you, so you don't. And that, that's the frustrating, and it comes out in the writing as well. I mean, we get writing that is very clever and writing that is very good on deep kind of subjective emotion all the things that are happening to me but we don't get writing that is is engaged with the community that is outward looking or, or embracing right. in, in any way and that's what i you know that's kind of as a teacher that's what i want i want writing that embraces the other and, and moves past the self well, i think that's i mean i know that both of you you know talk in terms of a struggle of going and getting that little piece of paper and god knows friend I've, I've walked with you through that one so i know but you know uh, having that piece of paper is what gives you the credibility to open those doors and there that is the value and just because somebody else gets sucked into that vacuum of like normalcy that sucks the life out of them 
I mean, it's quite pleasing actually to see that from the outside in and see that there are people who are willing to let go of that internal desire in the interest of a bigger purpose. And at the same while, in the same while, you still thrive on your own exactly like you probably wanted to, to begin with. You just got it because you did the right thing <laughs> for the right reasons, you know? And, and yeah, it's a bitch and it may be hard, but it's worth it in the end because somebody else wins, you know? Mm-hmm. That's why we're here as yep. a podcast, you know? Um, and so I'm curious, <laughs> I guess I'm curious what you guys think about that because, you know, Fran well knows that, that the underlying theory behind everything social yet distanced um, is kind of predicated on the logic that we've engaged with these circles of poetry people, these communities, the word keeps coming up, these communities for years now. And they're, they're relatively smaller or bigger closed communities. You have these little cliques within the bigger closed community, but it's all closed. And so if Paul Corman Roberts has a book for sale, Fran's gonna go and buy it because she likes Paul and she knows he's a good writer. But Mary Sue in Birmingham, Alabama has no clue that Paul even exists. And she's being left out of the wonderful world of poetry because there's a line in one of of Paul's poems that would change her forever in the way that she viewed wherever she was. And I feel like that's my responsibility is the reality is I ain't a good writer as I'd like to be, okay? That doesn't mean that I don't love what I do when I write. It doesn't mean that I don't love the people who do that. My passion is on an equal par, but I also feel like we're limiting ourselves because if all I do is sell the same books to the same people every time, I'm actually not only limiting my sales, but I'm screwing the rest of the world because they don't get that. They don't get to know that it's out there. I don't know what. What do you guys think about that? Because I'm a dreamer, a Pisces guy. You know, <laughs> is that what that comes from the, Pi- the from the Pisces end of the calendar? There? Yeah, actually, it does. Okay. <laughs> that, that, okay, all right. No, that's fair. That's fair. Um, I, you know, it's. It was funny. Funny when you said there was a there's there's a line that, that that would change your life. I thought there was a line between Mary Sue's world and my world that keeps us. I mean, that's a little bit of it, I suppose. Um, but I think kind of what you're kind of what you're starting to bump up against there, Jack, is the idea of that a poet is just a poet is more than an author. A poet is more than a person who writes words and publishes them. Um, a poet also goes out and reads and reads publicly and reads to audiences. Um, and share and shares the words and, and, and the words are supposed to have an impact, not just on the eyes, but on the ears as well. Um, and that's that the, the charge of the poets a little more in, in that vein. Uh, it's more, it's, it's not the page or the stage. It's really the balancing act between the page and the stage. And I, I've known a lot of guys in my, I, and of course I've known a lot of poets in my life who've gone one direction or the other. They, I, I, like what they, all they do is perform and they might barely publish once in a while. And then there's the ones who just publish, and you, and are absolutely mortified of the prospect of reading right. to even two or three other people in a room, much less, you know, an auditorium of sorts or a coffee shop or what or what have you. Right. Um, 
and I'm in and, and the, the fact that we're able to have that many different types of poets speaks to the um, speaks to what what is what a seminal art form poetry is that we can have we can have such a wide variety poetry to me is the base art is the base form of not just of literature uh, but also for me the visual arts and to some degree even music um, you know, musicians will, you know, musicians will kind of go like, well, you know, anyway, somebody had to, somebody had to blow on the, on the wine jug. And I'm like, I know, I know. And it all came together, but also, but also really aren't, aren't, aren't the cave paintings in France and the, the drawings that the, the, the ancient Pueblos put on the rocks aren't, I mean, that's, that's their poetry, right? It, it is. They, they were expressing something that was deep and meaningful to them. And that has, you know, those little bits of it, those little shadow shards of it have reached us down through the years. And we get this little tiny peek behind the curtain, the, the, the curtain of reality really is what it is. Um, and those, and I mean, it, it's just pretty natural that I went right out into the desert to use that, that metaphor, because to, to me, the curtains of reality hang very heavily over the deserts of, of this really world, good. but that's, that's a, that's a personal a thing. thing. <laughs> it, it is, it is. I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting off on a Colorado plateau tangent here. <laughs> no, I agree a hundred percent. And I, you know, I, I distilled it in my mind as you were saying, and it's kind of like, if I'm writing fiction, or, or something that's telling a story. I'm telling a story and I wanna carry you through that story. If I'm writing a poem, I wanna smack you at the final line and sit with you. I don't wanna take you anywhere. I don't wanna drag you along with me. I want you to have to fucking confront me on your space, you know? And that's kind of how I do that. What do you think, Fran? Yeah, I like the idea that I'm just going to smack you in the face with a poem as, <laughs> as a sort of brick. My poetry has been described as, as being very brick-like. Um, <laughs> I don't know, I'm sort of I thinking, listening to um, yourself and Paul talking, Jack, um, and about the idea of, of kind of community. And people have this idea that, that a poetry community has to be very loving. And, and very embracive and very giving and very generous. But I think actually most as a person that grew up in a variety of small towns, most real communities aren't like that. Right. And actually there's something to be said for having that bit of friction and for kind of testing each other and, and kind of pushing against. And I think if, you know, if life was, if life was easy and I got on with everybody that I had to work with, then it, I would just, there wouldn't be any point for me. I would just lie on my side and wait for the fucking moss to reclaim me because I need that kind of grit and that yeah. kind of interaction. Yeah. You, you, I believe it was you and um, I believe it may have been Paul were talking about um, concrete poetry. Oh, it, maybe it wasn't Paul, it was somebody, but you, in one of the interviews that you sent me, you were, you were talking about concrete poetry. And I don't know exactly what that means to you, what you mean when you say that. So, so concrete poetry is like um, very much to do with uh, the form of the words on the page and, and the kind of the typography and, and the look of the thing and the kinetics of the thing rather than rather than the sound of the word. It's very um, it's very page driven rather than very sound driven. So it's rather than like Jimmy Hoffa buried at a stadium somewhere concrete. It's a different kind. Yeah, no. Although. <laughs> <laughs> Gotcha. If you had the basic, if you had the basic blueprint of the foundations of giant stadium, you could arrange those into words you, that, you that you know, sort of 
Got you. That 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 reminded us of the legacy of of Jimmy Hoffa, I suppose. <laughs> um, yes. Yeah, it is. It's 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 the it's the it's the it's it's the visual. It's a visual artistic medium mixed with the text. The text becomes the medium of the visual art. I, I think um, there was a period, is, and you probably know this as well as I do. But didn't Razor have a period of time where he wrote a lot of stuff that was kind of that style? It was. I, I mean, I'm picturing like I, what, I, what I'm saying. I'm seeing in my eyes is like. Or in my brain, I'm not seeing in my eyes. That would be bad. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like a line here, one that sits over here, four down here, three down the middle. You know, so like I wrote a poem once that said, uh, you know, you're never gonna go right, and then I put a I put an arrow that went to the right. You know, that is that an example of what you're talking? I'm trying to learn here, guys. I didn't go to school. <laughs> no, that's an example, but it gets right. more weird and radical than that, you know, gotcha. like, I mean, concrete poetry at its extreme edge is words that are almost illegible sometimes kind of ripped up. So it becomes collage. I think it's a really great way of thinking about it. So it becomes like a collage. So it's not quite um, words on the page are not telling a kind of narrative story. They're just being used as an artistic medium, as you would use paint or as you would use like bits of cut up paper. It's so it's somewhere like, you know, like the ransom letters. You know, like, yeah, from like the, it's, I mean, and I'm very <laughs> familiar with the cut up poetry and all that stuff. I mean, I, I get that theory. Right. Yeah. So like that and kind There's, of all over the show. Do, are you, you're going to make me break out the, you're going to make me break out the true academic and go back to Simeus of Rhodes, the, the poet Simeus of Rhodes. No, um, don't do that. Around, please, please don't. He lived around 325 years before, before, before zombie Jesus, before the zombie Jew did. Uh, sorry, I'm crossing, I'm crossing my own lines here. The, um, in, but Simeus of Rhodes wrote these poems called Axe and Wing. And the poem was literally in the shape of an axe. And you had, if you're looking at it straightforward, you can't read the poem because you're looking at a picture, a, a, a visual representation of an axe. Um, and then you turn it on its side. The blades are on either side of the handle, which runs in the middle. And you read the poem in a key, what's called the chiastic method, which is you read the top line of the poem first. The second line of the poem is the bottom line, and then you go back up to the second to top. The second line from the top is the third line. The fourth line is the second line from the bottom, and it's this back and forth until you get to the center of the poem, which is the handle of the axe, mm -hmm. and the handle of the axe, and it it serves as almost if not a brick, at least a summarization, kind of the bow on the package, as it were, that is the, that is the core, the center of the poem. And that's, you know, and that's where, and honestly, that's where concrete poetry comes from. Um, because the, the, the people who then, the people who then invented concrete poem in the concrete poetry in the 20th century were very well aware of that. And the, the Simeus of uh, Rhodes poem, uh, Wings, works much the same way. Um, and the wings are long. Instead of a long-handled X, the words at the end in the middle of the body of between the wings are very short, but they're double-edged and also make up the body, sort of make up the central theme of, of the poem that's being told. And it kind of leaves you hanging like, wait, is this poem about an angel or a butterfly? And you're kind of wondering, maybe there's, the, 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 the implication is that there isn't much of a difference between an angel and a butterfly. Cool. Did you know Our that, Grant? Did you know that? Did you yeah. Know that? Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> awesome. I admit, 
Yes, I, I teach you. She's like, I teach at university. Don't you know, Jack? Well, I do. I mean, obviously, you know, I was just curious if the doctor of poetry knew it, too. It was like not until not until last year, because I, I have a friend who who wrote her um, doctoral thesis on concrete poetry. And yeah. she, it was her that actually told me. So until last year, I wouldn't have known. It was only because Brennan oh, was oh, like, oh, oh, yeah. That's who you were That's talking. That's kind of hilarious about. because Dude, I didn't know any of that. Yeah. I didn't know any of that until last year either. I, yeah. I, I, re <laughs> I researched. I researched it for my social media workshop. So poetics and social media workshop that I teach for. for so I can bank on next year this that. time on, on a podcast. I can be the genius that explains that. Yes. Cool. I will have forgotten. Yes. Will have forgotten Absolutely. that you <laughs> that it originated here and be like Jack's a genius. <laughs> How did you know that, Jack? You never went to school. <laughs> Did they teach you that in prison, young and yet, man? And yet you're... <laughs> Let's talk about uh, Bone Moon Palace, place I would like to spend vacation, please. Let's talk about that where it came Well, from. maybe not. You, you seem like... Uh, well, the Bone Moon Palace. You seem pretty um, jazzed about this one, I'll say. Well, you know, it's, it's, I haven't had a book out in six years and that's the long, it's from, from the moment I started putting books out till now, um, it's the longest I've gone without putting one out. Um, and I think it, it speaks to the conversation we we're having earlier about not caring about it as much because I, it's, it, there were more points when I got like, uh, should it, should it, should it really go so, should I really go so long without putting out a book? But it was more important to get it right. It was more important to make sure that it had, you know, good backing, good support, and that the, that the pieces inside were really, really strong. Because if there's one thing I learned from putting books out before, it's that I really regret not spending enough time on the editing process. Like, oh, this is out in public now, and it's shit. Fuck, I hate that. Um, I, I don't enjoy that sensation one bit. Um, but um, so I that understand that. Has been part of why. I've book for 10 years now. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It'll, 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 it'll get out. It'll get out. You've, you've, got, a, you've got a long way to go before catching up to that. It's okay. It's, no, it's not an issue. I'm not good enough yet. Yeah, yeah. I get it. I know how it works. <laughs> <laughs> like I didn't want the best. I, I wouldn't say. have asked her, you know. <laughs> you can't beat a good editor I, that, and that's the thing is that this book had that editing process mm -hmm. it had that that one-on-one -on -one. and on, honestly it was my good buddy Yusuf Alawi who really put me through the paces one of the few people from grad school uh, who I and, and that's and that's when I realized like how that's the whole thing about grad school is is they spend all this time trying to convince you how great the fucking program is when really the important thing to do in grad school is to make connections with your classmates because um, sucking up to your advisors, sucking up to your advisors and your teachers isn't going to help either. I mean, it might help a little bit, but it's ultimately in the end, ultimately in the end, that business because they're trying to compete and they're competing against their students and it's kind of ridiculous. But you're stronger if you forge alliances and work at work alliances and collaborations with your fellow students. And the things that you build out of that are actually much more valuable in the long run, I have found. Um, you know, I mean, and then thankfully, thankfully, I've I've kept some good relationships with my surviving teachers and advisors through the years because they're because ain't none of us getting any younger. Oh my fucking god! But uh, but Bone Moon Palace is not a place is not a fun place to visit these days because it's in ashes. It's it's literally burned out. It's the Bone Moon Palace is the ghost ship, and it's and it's and and my my manuscript revolves around the it does revolve literally around the ghost ship tragedy, which is. The, the title poem, which is at the center of the man, almost at the center of the manuscript. 
uh, and my, <clears throat> my editor who I worked with closely on the manuscript insisted there be a blank page on either side of that piece. And it's mm -hmm. like, you know, I don't, it's, it, it's, it's got me, you know, that gets me to thinking about book design in ways that I don't think about it in, in the ways that, you know, these poems appear in arrangement to each other. Uh, she, Michaela Mullen, wonderful editor uh, that I got to work with at Nomadic Press, uh, is had just all these wonderful suggestions along the way uh, and amazing out of the box ideas about where the poems should be, where, how they should be arranged in order in the manuscript. And it just, just, it, it just really justifies, confirms my view, gives me, there's always a word that I'm reaching for that I can't remember, but it's true that for each of us as writers, I think we need a really close set of second eyes. We need, all need a really good editor to work with us and literally go through it line by line to make sure that we're getting it right. To get to, and to just have that perspective because when you have been working on a manuscript, you are so deep in your own forest that you cannot see it. You can you see all the trees, but you can't see the forest. And it's a cliche. I realize it's a tired cliche, but it's so fucking true. The right. only the only way I've ever discovered to edit for myself, you know, when it is just you, when you don't have the support, when you don't have a press behind you, when you are trying to get a manuscript to the place where you want it to go, the only way I've discovered for me that works in terms of just like really just brutal editing is to read the poems out loud to myself in the mirror. Yeah. When I read my own poetry out loud to myself in the mirror, I figure out pretty quickly what I don't want in there and what I do want in there. Um, there's a kind of, and it's, it's a little bit like the thing you were talking about before, that confrontational thing between the poet and the reader or the listener or the audience, and that being able to read the facial expressions, being able to get a read on the body language, um, which is why you are alone when you're on that solitary journey. You know, sometimes, sometimes, you know, it's understandable why we get a little narcissistic. The mirror becomes a friend that, it, that doesn't lie to you. Right. Um, and, and, and that's what we often need are friends who don't lie to us. If they lie to us, they're really not our friends, are they? A, a true friend will tell me when my, my zipper's down, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> right, 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 right. Brian, what, yeah, do, you, what do you think? I mean, having worked as an editor and then being at the hands of somebody like Roddy, um, who I'm sure you'll want to talk about in this part of the conversation, mm -hmm. um, Talk to us a little bit about your thoughts on editing. Yeah, I mean, I think what I'm realizing about myself is that I'm, I'm not, there are different kinds of editor. And I'm not the same kind of editor that Roddy was because Roddy, Roddy was a wonderful human being, but he was extremely brutal as an editor. He would, he was one of those good friends who would literally just tell you. He would just, and not just in poetry and anything, you know, if you came in and you looked terrible, he would tell you. If you had a piece of toast sticking to your head, he wouldn't wait for there to be a quiet moment before he mentioned this loudly. <laughs> he would just tell you. Um, and, and he would have this red pen that would come out. We'd be working on a manuscript together and, and the red pen would come out and, and I would be sitting beside him. He could have just told me he's writing on the paper. No! <laughs> and And extremely brutal and extremely honest in a way that he he relied on me to have a deal of emotional maturity about my own work which I think I probably didn't have at the time and so I would go home and kick the sofa because I thought that he hated me and he said this about my work he hates me he doesn't know anything but actually he did he's very smart and his kindness was in taking you seriously enough that he could trust you with the truth 
Right. Um, I haven't quite got it in me to be that brutal with people. I'm very, you know, I'm kind of trying to be a lot more diplomatic because I think if I allowed myself to say what I really thought 90% of the time, it wouldn't be very complimentary. <laughs> I have two modes. I have extremely diplomatic. <laughs> they might not sign up for the workshop next time and you really need them to sign up for the workshop next time. Exactly, so. right. <laughs> <laughs> Oh great! I've just, I just I I I probably ruined myself. I probably ruined my teaching career by saying that right here, right now. Don't worry, nobody's watching, bro. It's good. And the ones, that do, <laughs> and the ones that do, we all know them, so it's okay. We can tell them to keep. Yeah, no, no, I know, I <laughs> know. Uh, thank you for checking me, Jack. I appreciate that. It's all good, my brother. It's all good. No need to panic. <laughs> Plus, I can do some editing if we need to. You know what I'm saying? You can edit. You can be. You have to be this good editor, which means you also have to tell us when we're talking shit. This is very important. No, you, it'll just disappear, and you'll never even know you said it. <laughs> I was with Mike James the other day. He was like, "I said, well, I'll just cut it out." And he's like, "Don't cut too much." <laughs> No, I feel like you could just edit. You could just edit. I could say hi at the beginning and then goodbye at the end, and then you just cut the rest of it. That would be fine. That's the only way you can avoid my saying something stupid. No, in fact, um, you're, um, I think the magic is in us all has become part of the theme song now. <laughs> <laughs> the magic was inside us all along. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Paul, how about some poems, dude? You got this new book. Let's pimp it. Let's pimp it. Let's see. What are we gonna? What are we gonna? Well, okay. Let, I'll just you know. I, this is the first thing. This is really the first thing. Like the 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 publicity blitz around this is just starting, and this is the first thing that I've been doing in in support of that. So let me just say I, I'm I'm honored that it's you guys. I'm honored that this is the this is the podcast that's gonna that's gonna be the first to kick it off. Uh, well, wait, way, outside outside of some of the library outside of some of the live readings I'm gonna be doing. So, it's, it's um, pleasure and so I'm just going to start, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm just going to start with a couple of pieces right off the beginning of the, of the book here and just make sure that they're, uh, yeah, yeah, let's, let's do these first couple of pieces here. Um, this is the, this is the, this is the debut or the, the, the opener. It's called Sanctuary. <clears throat> Mama, you do everything you can to bring us back down into your bosom the cost of just enough sanity to keep the unsmooth machine farting away, but you couldn't know that we would take to it with such vigor, like that one fish all those years ago who decided she had had quite enough of the fucking ocean for a lifetime. A brave flipper appendage reaching through the saran raposphere congestion in prayer for streamers of cold, crisp air cooled by moonlight, though I am not a creature of the night, but a denizen of the pre-dawn coming here to escape not from everyone else, but from everywhere else, a hiding place to be alone in sometimes. Social currency watch it washes out with the next high tide. Heinemann lives in all our memories, fucks with our heads every time we take on the animal rituals of body, the reptilian rituals of death and sex, the angelic rituals of cleansing and the demonic rituals of burning the whole motherfucker down. I have grown fat on fake news. Memes are more nutritious than media. 
There remains an impossible magic loving to be found in the smell of these ruins. It refuses to die. A new city is built from the twilight residue, scattered by winds from, from a fall no investor saw coming round the mountain when it came. Hope was left behind somewhere on the journey, but like the river, like love, it is a relentless comer that reminds you that you are too, a quavering in the voice, and we become intoxicated on a forbidden tincture, holding all the secrets of guilt, grief, and joy, so vividly felt in the collapse of television networks, in the bloody conquest of righteous barbarians, and an unfortunate smear of dog shit running up along the sides of your brand new spankin' loafers. We can no longer hide in laundromats, donut shops, doubling as burger joints, no longer take cover in union halls and miniature golf courses, walk easily into Canada because there is no longer an unguarded border for our new thing, our overlord-driven thugocracy. When that heavy, particular twilight coils its purple boa around our shoulders, that is the time we will most need to know that there is a place for us, not just a place, not just a shelter, but sanctuary, the place where monsters cannot reach us, at least for tonight. We have a concrete, a concrete slab in the boiling night. We lay together on a cooling absorbency, the foundation of a new kind of starry prayer. Feel and not so much hear our comrades calling out to us from afar. The collective sabbatical is over. Drain the bath. Wear your layers of grime against your nakedness a shield of bacterial armor. You can't tell me you're not ready for this fight any longer. You can't tell me you haven't prepared the eviction notices for your old demons. You can't go on wrestling with the questions they are trying to distract you with, that there is simply no wrong answer. Mm. And then this is a shorter piece called Visiting, Not Saying. There will come a time when you will love me, but it will be too late. Or maybe it already was too late when it was too early, or maybe you said that a long time ago. We are the damage our families build into us, slow marinated over smokes, agave shots, and bloodline tragedies half buried on the beach. My father snores sweetly, a man tired, tired, tired of a life descending out of his body making sure to align his third eye with the center of the event horizon. That is, better to face up to it headfirst than struggle like a particle snagged in the teeth of a hungry god. Or maybe we just go home like we always do. And it's not so bad because it's home and you're not quite yet because home is a place that is not on fire. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying you're not. Hmm. Oh. Very nice. So good. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. I never quite know when I'm going through them. Yeah, that's, um, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like a little girl and you're like leading me down a path or something through these, this, whatever it is you're weaving. And I even put on my skirt, so. <laughs> Um, I mean, you are, and it doesn't end well. So, but that's, you know, you have to wait for the book to get, to, to, <laughs> I guess. To, well, at least I'm, I'm on track. I felt, I felt like I had a joke and I had nowhere to go. I had, I had a setup line and I had no closer. I'm so sorry. 
Well, that's because you don't really know if I'm wearing a skirt or not, and you were puzzled, and con you had to you had to contemplate that visual first. <laughs> I do have me contemplating oh, will, it. No question, Jack. No question. I, I will say this. You said, um, well, you, you had mentioned something about a kilt. You had mentioned something about a kilt. Yeah, that, I do that quite frequently to show my manhood. Um, yeah, uh, my comfortability with my manhood. That's what I meant. Yeah. Yes, yes. About the book, though, I, I, I do. It's weird that I pick that analogy, actually, because that's how I felt. Like, I felt like that's the beginning of a journey to somewhere. Well, and it's pretty obvious. It's the theme, right? The theme is like it's, yeah. it's, 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 a, it's a home. It's getting a new home and finding a new home. And that's, But there's an mm -hmm. ominous tone that I feel, you know? That's the, 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 the being led down that pathway, I suppose. Yeah. Um, yeah, because it's, it's, there is, yeah, there's, there's the hint because the definition of what home is, I mean, at my age, at our age, home um, is as defined as much by what it isn't as what it is. Um, it, you know, if I pull that into my whole psyche, I mean, the bottom line is, <laughs> I, I, feel, I feel like I was being dragged into something that I know is not good, but it was really pretty right then, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's not, I, I, yeah, I'm, I can't, I can't provide comfort. I can't provide, um, you know, I can, yeah, I can make it, I can make it tempting. I can make it sound fun, but I can't lie about, um, about what's, what's to be found there. Well, um, yeah, I, I think my point is that you don't have to say anything. I know what's coming. Yeah. You know, that's right. Kind of what do you think, Fran? I was going to say it feels extremely ominous and, and saturated with just the kind of the the ambient sort of threat of the world in which we live and I, and I was wondering how much of that kind of that that feeling that sort of brooding kind of expectant feeling is the particular story of, of the ghost ship and how much is just part of the the world where you where you were writing the book so how much is is just in you is that kind of background static of fucking Trump and <laughs> that racist, was, that was, disease ridden. Yeah. No, that's a great. That's 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 a great. I think that's a great sort of emphasis because that is, that's the um, that's the cultural setting for this mm -hmm. manuscript. You know, this manuscript was really developed with those those specters that 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 specter that's that that specter of a reborn fascism thing hanging mm -hmm. over, uh, hanging over the you know the the society that I grew up in. Um, but I think that these fears were in me long before any of that came to came to the front burners either. Uh, I, my own my own childhood is a series of, of bouncing around uh, and and having having home change, moving, and then my parents splitting up, um, and then living with my mom as a single parent mom who was slowly becoming uh, who was who unbeknownst to us at the time was developing cancer. Uh, but was also going. It was also had also turned schizophrenic, uh, because she. Uh, I, I know she heard voices. She absolutely heard voices that she responded to and had conversations with. And at the age of eight or nine, I didn't understand what this was. Mm -hmm. It's just like this is something my mom. I knew it was something other people didn't experience with their parents or were supposed to. Mm -hmm. 
um, but but how to deal with that. So it was only a matter of time before um, the the state you know state social services came and got me, and I went and lived in a foster home for three months, and that was that was a young that was a childhood trauma. And then my I, I'm lucky I'm blessed because my father came and got me and and took me out of the town the the very conservative stodgy train depot town that is Spokane, Washington, and brought me to Humboldt County, California, uh, where he was indeed, uh, in fact, a, uh, a dope grower. And then I found myself sort of in the life of, uh, I guess, what, what's, what's the word we call for it? Uh, in the, in, in, leading a prohibition kind of a life, I suppose. Uh, and, and, and that is its own sort of loneliness too, because you can't talk about the family business. You can't, mm -hmm. you can't, you can't, you can't show with pride what, what your family business is. Um, you can now, but like, I'm in my fifties now, it's too late. Right. Mm -hmm. it's, <laughs> but you know, I always tell that, I always say that you can take the boy out of Humboldt, but you can't take the Humboldt out of the boy. Yeah. But sometimes those, um, bo sometimes those boys from Humboldt end up in the desert, like some we know. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, this, this, this one definitely spent some time in the desert. Some of them, might, some of them will end up six feet under too. There's always that as well. You got to be. It's a, it's a because it's a. But that you know that's 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 the beginning. That, I guess that's the beginning of what's ominous about it, right? It's like this definition of home is always changing, but there's the threat. The threat is always there, uh, and and all this world promises us is death. You know, it's kind of like you know, it's you know, the world is. It's almost like it's mad that we're here. Kind of like, well, you know, I didn't really want. I didn't really want the Homo sapiens to come back, but here you all are making the most of it. It's like it's just a matter of time before I get rid of you. I just know it. Well, and the, and the I mean, the other piece for me, the way that you know that translates to me, and the way that I felt it when you read it is, you know, there's a barrier that that is created by the fact that whatever's coming is beyond my control. You know, I can't yeah. stop it. I can't control it. I can't even, I don't even know what to defend against, you know, and, right. and yet I'm being dragged in a certain direction. So, you know, and you, yeah, because I don't, whatever, I don't, I don't know to be, you, can, you can't stand still. Yeah. No, is it fear? Or is it just anxiety? I mean, I might be going around the corner to the biggest merry-go-round I ever saw, you know, who knows? So I may not. Right. Right. But you, Right, but the merry-go-round might be haunted, so you know you don't know. Right. You hope so. <laughs> you don't want a merry-go-round that's is. not haunted. I, I get, uh, I, I get nauseous and want to vomit. I don't want a merry-go-round at all. <laughs> yeah, you have to have to hustle for those outside things so you can try to get the magic ring, that stupid magic <laughs> ring. I swear to God. It's, <laughs> Let's well, get it. This is the one now. If I can just get it in the clown's mouth. No, no, oh, I missed again. Oh, where's my free ride? I don't get my free ride. Well, those big Ferris uh, wheels, the big Ferris wheels are like mm -hmm. my own personal version of hell. <laughs> I'm kind of with you on that. I don't I don't do heights well. I don't Me. do heights well. And the fact that you have to sit in the height for so long while they load the goddamn thing up is just ridiculous. <laughs> Well, and these days you got to pay like 40 bucks to even ride it. So it's like, that's stupid. <laughs> the one, the no, one in Atlanta no, no, is God. bucks, man. That's crazy. People got it like Can't that. Brand's rich. She goes to London all the time and rides the Mary, the Ferris <laughs> over and over. Never got the, I, I got a lifetime pass. 
It's so funny. I don't think all the time we lived there, I don't think I ever went on that fucking Ferris wheel. I just, it's just, it's not a proper Ferris wheel because it's enclosed and you have to be in it with, with like 500 other farty, sweaty tourists and their disgusting children. I'm like, no, I'm not paying money to do that. I like fairgrounds to be garish and unsafe with the possibility that I might sustain serious injury. Otherwise, there's no point. I want to be. I want to be on something. There's, there's something to be said about that. Might fall apart. <laughs> yeah, just to yeah. It's kind of like head. it's 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 like this. That's see what you're describing, Fran. Sounds a lot more like the Space Needle in Seattle. Okay, that's mm. you have to. You go, you go up in those elevators crammed with tourists and you wind up in that, that circular orb, the, that, that sphere at the top of the needle. And, and you, you at least have a couple of levels you can sort of get away and like, you, but, but it's, really, it's really hard to social distance in a place like that. And God knows ever since growing up, kind of alone and both both as a both as both as both as a, the, the the lone child of a woman who was very mentally challenged and as the lone son of a dope grower um <laughs> i became very comfortable with social distancing and yeah. and and it was so i so i had i had to work for it i had to work for it on the on the space needle but once i got a good spot on the space needle i could just look out over into 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 onto um the mountain there, I can't remember, Mount Rainier. I can just look onto Mount Rainier and go like, wow, one thing that, one day that thing's just gonna blow up and kill this whole city. <laughs> and there's a slight, there's a slight joy there. Not, not a big, not a big joy. There is, there, there is. And I, and I, and, I, and I'm, I'm terrible because I love Seattle. I love Seattle. I've had, I have, I have had nothing but a good time in that town and the literary community there has been very embracing of my work and supportive of me. So I always, I don't, I want, so, so not in my lifetime, not in my lifetime, but boy, one day that mountain's gonna go. <laughs> There's something about poets, I think, that we just wanna push something as far as it will go. I have, that's the kind of defining feature, even if it's gonna bring death and destruction and chaos. <laughs> yeah, I feel like we have to bear witness to a one volcanic eruption or one tsunami in our lives, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm building. If we haven't. We're constantly trying to make it for and recreate it. <laughs> <laughs> Create a resort, a, a, a riding getaway in Chernobyl. You know. <laughs> oh my goodness, yes. Oh my goodness, yes. Is it wrong? Is it crazy that I would love to tour Chernobyl one of these days? I really would. Yeah. Actually, it. it's not crazy at all. <laughs> I would just like right. to have tours of Chernobyl. There must be a thing. There must be somebody who offers that. I actually believe I read an article within the past six months about that exact thing. I think there is. I'm not surprised. Yeah. I think yeah. they had to wait so many years, but I think it's going on now. So good news. Yeah, exactly. The radio. Yeah. You have to sign a waiver. <laughs> I will not sue. Yeah, you know. <laughs> It's funny though they don't they, they don't ask you if you've been vaccinated before you go, <laughs> <laughs> because it just doesn't matter at that point. <laughs> well, tell us tell us a little bit about what your schedule is from this point and what your plans are, and if you got anything else you want to read, please do. Uh, we've been here a long time. I'll um, up all your time from you. Yeah. Um, Let's see. What have I got? What have I got coming up? I know I'm, the book is going to launch solidly on July third. That's so. I don't. I'm my my publisher is going to run that event, and they are in Mexico at the moment. So I have no idea what what is happening with that. Uh, I don't. I don't have a reading schedule. I, I I haven't had a reading schedule for over a year, and now I'm faced with the task of putting one together. And I gotta I gotta tell you, it's a little daunting. 
<laughs> but okay, you know, yeah. it was, podcasts are easy. Zoom calls, Zoom, yeah, and that was the whole thing before the pandemic. I had never ever taught a class online before. All of my teaching has been in the classroom and in person. April, April was instant crash course. Like, oh my god, I have to learn this mm-hmm. whole new thing. And it, you know, and thankfully, it's very user friendly. It's very easy. It turned around very quickly, uh, and I was able to do. It. And it's still much. And the Zoom thing is still, I find, much more useful for running workshops and teaching classes than than it is for sort of putting on shows. Although this as a podcast is really neat. And and of course that is the one thing I have coming up. I can pimp a little bit is the Friday Collapse uh, because I haven't talked about my new press, Collapse Press, which uh, which is sort of Lynn Alexander and I getting bringing the old Full of Crow family back together. Right. Um, but with a little bit more of a focus, um, we are actually going to look to publish books and run our monthly uh, our monthly Zoom or our monthly online show, um, where we'll have some 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 guests, some some features. Maybe even both of you could be a, a feature on it one of these days. Um, and uh, but but also but also have them you know spend a little time reading. But it's I like this format of just kind of shooting the shit and talking mm-hmm. about ideas and talking about the big things because it's something that we often are not we're lacking at the readings. Um, it gives us a context we don't normally have, and I do find that the poems in this format become perhaps more accessible or more enjoyable or more entertaining in this way at the same time without having like the poet themselves sit there and explain the poem for 15 minutes before they read it for five minutes. You know, it's uh, perhaps I exaggerate a little bit um, uh, because I don't know where that I've never known in my life. I've never known in my life where that impulse came from to try to, it's like, you can't explain it. You just let the thing speak for itself. Um, but but we write, but poems are small and short, right? We So we write lots of them. So when we read them all together, when we read them in these large blocks and get a lot more of them, they start to tell us another story. They start to reveal something else. And, and being honest about how that reveals something about an author has to figure into the way an author puts a book together, I think. So... I was look. I I just went off on this fucking tangent right now, right? I mean, you asked me about my no. You you answered the question, but I mean, of course, as it is with me always, it leads to the next question. And I we had this, you know, Fran and I had this discussion with Dorsey, and I pretty much had it with everybody. uh, You know, is that okay? We've all adapted to this whole Zoom atmosphere, whatever you want to call it to continue to share our work and our words and our fellowship and community and whatever you want to call it to whatever degree we decided to do that. And it, it, and we did it because we needed to adapt and everybody misses the, you know, the in-person together thing. Granted, that's going to start again, but what do you think is going to happen with the zoom part of it? Oh yeah. I think it's here to stay. I I absolutely, I, I, I absolutely think it's here to stay. Um, I think I, other people had been really, you know, kind of working it before and kind of trying to get the rest of us to come along with it. And then, and then this earth shattering event happens or not really shattered, sort of just this redefining event. And, and, and now it's, and now it feels like the stakes are upped a little bit because we're talking about live performances, but we understand not everybody's going to come to the live performances. Some people are going to, we now understand that there are a lot of people who are going to want to see it in this format. Mm-hmm. And it's hard for me now to imagine doing readings that aren't also at the same time being streamed live and live streaming is pretty good. And, 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 and talking about bringing the beast crawl back, um, we are gunning for our first live performance event over Labor Day weekend. That's September 4th, September 5th. 
that Saturday and that Sunday. And we're looking to have just a number of uh, curated shows. Still not a true crawl. Like we're not ready to do right, a true right, crawl yet this right. year. That's probably going to have to wait until next year at, at best case scenario. Um, but at the event that we have on Labor Day weekend, which will be a single venue with several different curators coming in, much like a festival, obviously we'll be fundraising on one hand, but at the same time, our goal is to have it streamed live all the way through. So we can have a live worldwide audience watching at any time and then also have it be easily accessible on archives. And that's, that's where we, I really going to try to involve uh, this group I've become involved with the Shuffle Collective who did a festival last year called the weekend of words and it was just a and it was just in the middle of this shelter in place in the middle of this we don't know what the fuck is happening right. or what the fuck is going to happen i had this weekend where there were all these readings and all these panels happening in my bedroom that i could just check in with on my monitor and and and, and a lot of them were really interesting a lot of them were like really high powered brilliant people talking about really brilliant things and and to have to have that at my fingertips, to feel the potential of that over a weekend uh, and to be able to check in with that was super, super necessary, empowering. It was something that helped me get through, you know, that stretch of weeks. Um, and so I, it's, it's something I can't, I can't, I can't unsee it. I can't unexperience that anymore. So now, like I said, the stakes are, this, the, the, this whole online access thing has upped the stakes tremendously. And here, I, I do believe it's the future. Thought I do believe it's here to stay. Here's a thought for you. So I agree 100% with everything that you just said, but the perspective that most people take, including yourself, is we're live in this event and we're going to stream that out. With my Zoom right. account, I have access for up to 100 people. So those 100 people could all log in and do a reading Right. We could stream that all weekend long if we wanted or however long it takes up to 100 people right. and do them back to back to back to back, you know, 100,000, uh, like the 100,000 poets uh, thing every year or something, you know, something along the right, uh, right, 100,000 poets for change. And that's right. Yeah, you that's funny. That's that's yeah. We've got people all over the world and we're streaming into places where people are doing readings anyway. So right, exactly. You're waiting to exactly. see whoever you want to see from your hometown or whatever at Joe's Bar in Toledo. Okay, you you can either watch other poems being read online, or you can do your own live event. So it's a full circle thing too. Everybody limits their thinking about that. I think it, it goes, and it's, and it's not right. And there's, and there's a lot of little things that you can add to it, especially if you're willing to bring the technology to the venue. You right. get the technology into the venue and this technology has become easy and accessible and you get it into the venue and you get it on. You're not just, you're not just doing it over Zoom. Well, I'll, you're, I'll, you're, I'll, you're tell it, I'll tell you a secret. I'll tell you a secret. through a program. I found it up into all these different platforms. <laughs> I found. Uh, yeah, you, you know. Yeah, I know how it works. You did. <laughs> you know. Yeah, yeah. That's gonna be. That's gonna be something that we're. That's gonna be something that all the cameras are gonna be want to be tied into. So they'll be. They'll be, as they say, leveraging the platforms, right. so to speak. It's an amazing. It's an amazing concept, and the idea that and the idea that we could take our festivals to that level, um, where where we have people in person and people around the world simultaneously, is. Um, 
I mean, it's, 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 I think it is probably going to be a little shaky to start. I think we're going to be, it's going to be a work in progress to say the least. Fran, you know, know, from your, I'm excited about it at the same time. From your experience, Fran, at, at readings, like, you know, I know that you've had little book tables set up where you're selling books and stuff. Do you think that a, a technical setup like that would make a difference in the number of books that you would have sold if you had a bigger audience? Honestly, I don't know. I mean, or do you it depends. Think, I mean, everybody seems to live for what they sell, you know, at the events. Hmm. Yeah, no, I, I have no idea, really, to be perfectly honest. I don't sell that much at events. I mean, it depends on where I, where I go. Book launches, I never really make anything because none of my friends who are the people who are coming to my book launch have any money. Right. But I mean, you do a gig at the South Bank and, you know, I, again, I don't see that money. The publisher takes that money. So it's not my money. Um, they, they just pay me a tiny mingy portion of it. Um, so I don't, I don't really know, but I know that, I mean, a few, I've done a few readings for a few presses and they've done donations or they've sold their publications. And some of them have, have the, the takings have been extremely poor. Um, but some of them, 87 Press, took hundreds, hundreds and hundreds of pints at the last reading I did with them. They just have the little PayPal set up and people pay what they can. And obviously they've got a very affluent audience that they're tapping because people right. just threw money at them. So, you know, I think it, I think it depends on, on who you're reaching and who you're bringing in. I think if people have had a glass of wine, this is the thing, encourage people to drink first. Um, <laughs> <laughs> people have had a glass of wine and they haven't paid for the event itself and it's in their living room I think goodwill alone carries you through when you make that sale I think probably that would be my feeling would be my and guess and again if you get if you get a reader or if you get a poet who knows how to convey the personality and the and the kind of and and, and bring an aspect to it I mean that's I, I I do have an unfair advantage I studied professional acting in the theater for about five or six years um, and before I before I sort of left that all behind to become a full time poet, so I, I know what it's like to memorize monologues and dialogue and, and things like that. But also there there's this funny thing that I'll do in my poetry where I'll bring outside voices, you know, in um, mm-hmm. voices whether they're found voices from media or or quotes or or thing or things that I just overhear in the street that just strike me, you know I. As, as, as a poet, I feel like it's within my right to capture those things and etch them into the archive. Uh, mm-hmm. in, but in the way that I get to do it, you know, in, 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 with my agency and what, with my autonomy as I see it. But it's, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know that it sells a lot of books. I don't, I, don't, I don't think the events sell books. The events sell, they sell the experience and they sell, and they sell the personalities. Um, and uh, yeah, you know, you have to, to sell the books these days. Apparently you have to do the social media thing. You have to have the Instagram and the Tumblr and the- Well, you know, and it, the, and the, it's so funny because- <laughs> I guess TikTok, it's gonna be TikTok. I guess it's gonna be TikTok now, right? It's, yeah, we got Snapchat poetry. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I mean- it's, I Yeah, it's a fucking thing, right? It, I believe it actually is, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I believe it is too. Uh, you know, it, you know, but at 50 cents a pop, you know, you could get rich if <laughs> you put a tip jar there, I guess. <laughs> there are there are guys I know in particular who started off putting type poetry on Tumblr and the guys probably made a million dollars since selling shitty books. Oh, yeah. Well, they, 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 they moved from Tumblr to Instagram and from Instagram, they if they build up a following on Instagram, then a, a larger 
a larger media type savvy company or press will get interested in them. That's, you know, that's, that's I, in, my social media, in my social media poetics, we, we spent some time talking about Rupi Kaur, who, <laughs> you know, is, is, is slightly, is, is probably, you know, has, has, has grown over the years as a poet. Let's, let's give her a little bit of credit. But, you know, if we go back to those, those early things, I mean, it's, 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 it's maybe one cut above a Hallmark greeting card, right? With its, the sort of content and what, what appeals. I mean, the marketing company that made her rich is, um, is a fan, you know, traffics in family entertainment. They're not, right. you're not, you're not going to get, you're not going to get William Burroughs through her publisher. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's Rupert physically has, painful. It's rumor physically. has it that, uh, that, <laughs> rumor has it that Christopher Poindexter is a computer in the corner of the room. <laughs> Right, 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 that it just generates. That's, I remember, I mean, the stories about Hallmark, and I touch on Hallmark too, because you have mm -hmm. to remember Hallmark is the most, it was the most profitable distributor of poetry in the 20th century. Absolutely. Um, because that, it, and, and they're all come there, but before, they, and now they're not, they're, they're still in the greeting card business, but really they're about making these treacly, these treacly family values type movies that they put out now. Um, that are that are so formulaic, they're so unbelievably formulaic that you can just you always know what's coming next based on what scene you just watched. But it's um, it's the, the, the blonde hair and That's all. When I did my first shows in Kansas City, where the company is headquartered, uh, a lot of the writers that you know, both I you know Ryberg, uh, you know <laughs> Laura Laura Jenkins, Lola Nation, Brandon, all those guys, you know all those folks there. Um, were had at one point or another, you know, gotten jobs at Hallmark, right? Because it seemed like it for, you know, when you're young in your career, it's kind of like, oh my God, I can write poetry for a living. Um, and then, and no. then I don't think any of them lasted <laughs> six months. Not a, not, a, not a one lasted six months because, you know, you're, you're not really a poet. You're, a, you're an automaton that's repeating a formula over and over and over again. And you have to be doing that all the time to get paid even a measly amount of money. And at some point you go like, holy shit, this was a sucker's game to begin with. Um, and you, and, you and they it. managed to it's, it's, creativity. It's one of the great, the, the great anecdote side stories of Kansas City. Yeah, that's an awesome story though. That is so freaking classic, like storybook tale, you know, of the, the poet's soul getting sucked out by the big corporation. <laughs> yeah yeah it's 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 like it's like some people are going like well where is that i'm all like oh well it exists but you know it's not as it's not a, it's not as glamorous or as epic as you think it is it's 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 an intractable yeah. economic god did you that know that bukowski it. worked for the u.s postal service <laughs> yes right 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 he was and a fucking he hero man <laughs> I know, right? And then he quit when he got John Martin to pay him two hundred dollars a month because you know you could afford to live on two hundred dollars a month in downtown LA in nineteen seventy one. Oh boy! <laughs> and drive an MG. <laughs> and drive an MG. And drive an MG. And not have to be responsible to a single thing or person or anyone, you know. But that's that's okay. That's okay. It's like yeah, you don't you don't need money to feed the kids or the pets. We're gonna go spend that money down at the racetrack. <laughs> So now you have your model for living, Paul. <laughs> oh, thank you, Hank. Thank you, Hank. Thank you so, so much. All right. I think I've sucked enough of your time. We can do this all day long, but we don't necessarily have to subject the audience to it. 
Um, I know. Did I read, did I read enough poetry? Should I have read? Yeah, I think you should definitely close us out with one. And then um, what I'll do is I will stop the recording after you finish. And then we can say goodbye to each other personally and in, in person. All right. Oh, so take it away. Boss. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. I'm going to close. I'm going to close with one of more of the epic bits from the book. Thank um, you. This is great. I kept everything to the book today. That's, that's, I'm on brand. Yeah, I'm on brand. Ooh. Uh, all right. So this piece is called The Really Very Good Friday. The Really Very Good Friday came a few weeks after the Catholic version of Buen Viernes. In a warm lit room on a dark rainy night, I could see the collective God mind, the collective goddess heart in their sweet fever dance and they called themselves nomads while dancing the galactic and simultaneous singularity. Tiny cosmic strings supercharging the primed particulate of a dampening night with that smell, that pungent pre-flowering of a young desert. It would be so much easier if every fall were not followed by a rebound. How much simpler, shorter, passing, ephemeral life could be if the substances of the earth simply swallowed us every time a flailing, failing, splayed faller immersed themselves utterly in the context of a topsoil collision fertilized by decomposing dreams. And sure, this happens for some of us, but it has not yet happened for you or me, at least not yet anyway. You're still here unswallowed, thrown back into the bubble by an intelligent design who means not to be found by anyone we know, soft white underbelly got a lot more learning to learn. Can you not see it all around us? Can you not see the blood beneath the trees? Bodies have fallen here before and they will fall here again. Our children never seem to notice the stains the way we do. Their imaginations speed away from all this grown up knowledge the way all healthy galaxies should. So many of us want the meaning of life to be much more than just eight hours of sleep negotiated down to five, negotiated down to five hours, three moderate meals and at least one good shit every day. So let me give you a little something more. Don't be like me, taking your meals alone, eat in the company of others, even if they are strangers. To develop the habit, no, to develop the compulsion of eating alone is even worse than self-medicating alone. No one ever exchanged energy with themselves and felt better about it after. Don't open yourself up to life as if prompted by some side effect drenched product crapped out of the bowels of big pharma. Open yourself up to the lives all around you if only for a little while. Perhaps meaning is a fool des fool's design, dear Kenneth, but I'm sorry, there is no other frequency. These buzzing shells of antenna we call brains can grasp unless, seeker, you can somehow tell me different. Pick up one of these broken branches and in the name of love, see it please for what it is. A multitude of multiverses still humming away in the consensual reality. Can you not see the miracle in this? What is death is simply more life than we are able to dream. And what use fear when the channel changes so easily? Oh, such scraps I have to share with you. Innocuous at first, yes, but endless, infinite dark light loving in infinite looping, pulsing spirals, fractals and supernova swarms. And here you are still stuck in the middle with me. So nice, my friends, so nice. 
I um, thank you. I, you know, it's. I think there's something about the way, uh, just the way you read, as well as your connection to the actual words. That um, it's almost like it's really visual because I hear poetry really visually anyway. But it, it's really I, I use the term cinematic. In that it's kind of like mm. you're watching a movie, um, but the thing about it is there's a different hue on it to me like it's being told through a different light uh, and i don't know what that is really but it's a pretty high compliment so you know that um i don't i don't i don't know what it means but it means something so for whatever that's worth <laughs> <laughs> i ain't got Somebody, no education man so, i have to so, make so. this shit up you know <laughs> <laughs> I really appreciate that, Jack. That means the world to me. It means the world to me. You guys have, have to have have you guys have me here today. Well, that's just crazy, man. Any old time. It's been our pleasure and our and our. Uh... Yeah, I would love. Oh my God, you guys are so much fun. I please, yes, let me come back and do this again some other <laughs> please, time. Any time, dude. Any time. You don't even have to have a project. If you just want to come co-host and hang out, come on, we'll do it. Yeah, anytime. Fran, any final words from you? All right, all right, yeah. No, that just that everyone should should just buy the fucking book. That's all. Do you have I'm a, buy the fucking book? Do you have a pre-order link yet at all? Oh yeah. Oh my god. I should should I put that in the chat screen or should I um, send it to no, somewhere? Or? No, I just am verifying, so I'll make sure that I get it in the description. And if there's one that's handy you can mention, you can go ahead and do that now. And then I'll put it in the, the you know in yeah, the so. Yeah, so it is, uh, I do have it here somewhere. Uh, it's nomadicpress.org slash store slash Bone Moon Palace. Cool. Oh, you know what? I remember I copied and pasted that so I would know it. Okay, I got it. <laughs> yeah, it's, if, you do, if, you do, if you do Bone Moon Palace Nomadic Press, it comes up pretty quick on the Google search. It's, oh, right, cool. it's right there. That's, this, is the first time I, this is the first time I've ever had a book available for pre-order. I am really grateful to... Nomadic Press. You've probably heard the name check in that poem right there. Absolutely. Um, because the press is also something that is, they are more than just a publisher. They are also, as you would say, a community organizer. And, 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 and some of these, I was, in fact, the night, the night that the ghost ship caught fire and all, and we lost those 36 souls uh, to, 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 to that other ocean. Um, I was sitting in there, I was sitting in their offices with no idea that it was going on, but I heard about it later and it was just kind of like, it's all connected, man. It, 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 it sounds like, I know it sounds like hippie cliche shit and it is hippie cliche shit, but it's also, but the reason it's hippie cliche shit is because it's fucking true. Right. And it is all, it is all connected. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, guys, I appreciate it. You, I want you guys to sit tight. I'm going to close this out. I'm going to read uh, Rich's blurb from the book um, because Rich is just the fucking man. He is. He is. <laughs> Love that man. Yeah, um, so this, ladies and gentlemen, is going to be a, uh, a, bur a blurb from the book, and it should be further encouragement besides the words that you should go and buy this book immediately and pre-order it now. Um, Paul Corman Roberts' words create a lush, lyrical roadmap to navigate a world where one can feel lost in sideways sanity. With heart, hope, and humor as his magnetic north, Corman Roberts leads us along roads teeming with ghosts, shapeshifters, poisonous CEOs, and investment bankers. Rather than imposing upon us 
a one-way ticket to the abyss, replete with Edenless days where memes are the new media and democracy is pummeled by thugocracy. Corman Rock Roberts offers us a proverbial light at the end of our journey that poetry can offer sanctuary and that even amidst a crumbling empire, we still need to be held, need to be cuddled, even in the squalor of our own dust. Rich Ferguson, LA spoken word performer, beat poet laureate of California and author of Everything is Radiant Between the Hates and a good friend of the podcast. No higher words of praise that I'm aware of. And if you don't know Rich, go check out the pod uh, episode with him as well. And uh, Absolutely. Everything is Radiant Between the uh, Hates is a epic. That's all I can tell you. Rich is epic. Got my, got my copy. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, everybody, for hanging out with us uh, and dealing with the long-windedness of lonely poets. We love you. God bless you. We'll see you next week. Thanks for coming by. Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye, guys. Hello. My name is Jack Varnell. I'm the Emotional Orphan. I am with the Social Yet Distance podcast. And, you know, in this crazy COVID world that we've created, everybody is always looking for ways to support themselves and their families. So that's what the Social Yet Distance uh, podcast and crew is really all about. We're built on the idea of supporting small businesses, the small press, and all the creators we can get our hands on. We're looking at ways that we can bring you more and better content that helps us to meet that goal. But meanwhile, redbubble.com and Society6, the number six, society6.com forward slash emotional orphan at both. We'll get you to our art store and merchandise store where you can pick up all kind of goodies, um, anything from art to full-size furniture. So come visit us. Help support the podcast.